You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org. The threat of invasion by Assyria was very real. Yet, because of the devotion of Hezekiah, God demonstrated his power and the Assyrian army was destroyed. Now, despite Hezekiah's willingness to welcome emissaries from Babylon, God outlines his intention to work with his people in chapters from Isaiah chapter 40. Of this middle section of Isaiah is so interconnected and so dependent on the history of the of the era in which it was written and afterwards. There are so many interconnecting ideas and themes and thoughts, and I have got no hope of bringing them all to your attention over the next few nights. The 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 interconnection is quite incredible. So I'm going to go through these um, four chapters and try to give you a historical base on what they went through, the lessons that they should have gained, and the lessons, hopefully, that we will gain. There are types of the Lord Jesus Christ all through this. We will touch on some of them, certainly not all of them. I'm not making that the emphasis. That really, honestly, it's another subject all of its own. So I hope that you will enjoy and get something out of these chapters as we go through them uh, over the next few nights. We'll never get the full impact, brothers and sisters, of of these chapters, but we'll give it a go. But first of all, we've got to understand the background of this. And I know Brother Dan did it last year, and I'm sure we've all forgotten that. If you're anything like me, you forget things very quickly. I want to go back over the history that brings us up to chapter 45, and that will make it so much the more meaningful to us in this day and age. Now, we've got to go over the previous talks, as I said, to gain this valuable insight. And I'll I'll try to do it as briefly and succinctly as I possibly can. So what do we do, brethren and sisters? What do we do? We come back to Isaiah chapter 10. And I'm I'm not going to go from Isaiah 10 all the way through to 45. But I want you to go back to chapter 10 just initially. And we're going to read that because this this portrays somewhat of the the atmosphere and the the arena in which we are talking. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, where it says there, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, and the staff of their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against a hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. This verse, brothers and sisters, among, amongst many, tells of the Assyrian invasion. They were the rod of his anger to punish a people who were play-acting, hypocritical, in the, wor- in the worship of the God of heaven. And the political landscape at this time, from around about BC 800, through to Isaiah's time of BC 740, was incredible as far as Assyria goes. 
Assyria reigned supreme. It fought and won battles everywhere. They were fierce. They were cruel. They were absolutely uncompromising. And Babylon and Syria were a constant thorn in their side from time to time. And minor nations like Edom and Moab and Israel itself were small nations. And, and in a way, the greater objective of Assyria was Egypt. They wanted to get to Egypt. And all these little nations got in their road and Babylon was here and, and, and Syria was there niggling them all the time as they tried to go about establishing, establishing this mighty Assyrian empire. And they were everywhere wrecking havoc. So we know very well, don't we, of the story of the Assyrian defeat in Hezekiah's time, approximately 700 BC. We know that story very well. But previous to that, Assyria had come into the land on many occasions into Israel. BC 732, 722, and there was a very long campaign in BC 713 back to 11. Time and time and time again, Israel and Judah were under threat and eventually the ten tribes fell in around about BC 709. But up to that, both Judah and Israel were continually involved in alliances and pacts and political manoeuvrings because of Assyria, against, against the advice of the prophets. Trust in God, they said. Hosea, Amos, Micah, Isaiah. Trust, trust in him and he'll protect you. Turn to him and he will turn to you. Don't trust in man, trust in your God. But in one way or another, it fell on deaf ears and then Israel in the north was left in absolute devastating ruin and despair, carried off in far off places. No home, no king, no nation, no firm religious base, nothing. Desolation. And here's the summary. This is what happened. The king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. And so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against Yahweh, their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, and they'd feared other gods. For they served idols, whereof Yahweh had said unto them, Don't serve the idols. Until Yahweh removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. In the future classes, we're, we're going to talk a lot about idols because that was a problem. They had it there. Fearing other gods, serving other gods, it is a major issue. It was then, and brothers and sisters, it is now. Something that we've got to come to grips with in our own day and age. And so as Second Kings goes on, uh, we read that the area of Samaria in the north became a place of mixed religion. And as was the practice of the Assyrians, they brought in pagan worship to dilute the religion of the one true God any other, or any other religion that was around at the time. So therefore they, they diluted the country's spirit and energy 
because they didn't have a focus. That's what their idea was, and, and that's what happened here. See, the, the people of Samaria ended up like this. They feared Yahweh and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. So, so then comes the, the final big invasion of Judah and the siege of Jerusalem, Isaiah 36 and 37, under King Hezekiah. Again, a story we know very well. Now, chapters 1 to 35 of Isaiah are largely prophecies about this Assyrian threat. And now, after decades, here was the Assyrian army on Hezekiah's doorstep. And Hezekiah was nigh unto death. What a mess it was, brothers and sisters. What an absolute mess that country was in. What a, it was a, a predicament of the highest order. He, Hezekiah was in, was in terrible trouble. BC 701, and here's Sennacherib on his front porch. And he'd walked a very dangerous path, had Hezekiah. Previously, he'd tried alliances with, with uh, Egypt and with Babylon. And if Hezekiah the king was captured by the Assyrians, he'd be literally skinned alive because he was disloyal. They'd skin him alive. That's how the Assyrians were. And Hezekiah had placed himself in a political and military vice from which there was no escape and Sennacherib was on his doorstep. There was no escape, none whatsoever, except, except by the power of the Holy One of Israel. And therefore, because of that, 185,000 soldiers lay dead outside the walls of Jerusalem. These were dramatic, intense times, and, and we can't really come to grips with that because we don't know what it's like. Not in any stretch of the imagination have we ever come across anything like that. But much more was to come, and Hezekiah made his biggest mistake which was to have far-reaching consequences for the kingship and for the nation. Isaiah 38 and 39. Let's just go there for a minute. <clears throat> Isaiah 39, verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. And Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointments, and all the house of his armour, and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Well, that was the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life reared its ugly head. These three lifted their ugly head and Hezekiah stumbled and hence we have Isaiah 39 verses 6 to 8. Behold the days come that all that is in thine house 
And that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith Yahweh. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which shall thou beget, shall they take away. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is thy word. And so, and so, some 90 or 100 years later, up came Nebuchadnezzar. Jerusalem fell, its city burnt, the temple totally destroyed, the people carried away to a strange and a frightening place, a place full of idolatry, mysticism, darkness, sorcery and witchcraft. A place in which everything was that Yahweh wasn't. And yet here were his people. A royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And here they were, an absolute rabble. None of the above. In a place of servitude, absolute paganism, absolute paganism. What a mess. What a mess. And you imagine, brothers and sisters, living at that time in that place. We can't imagine that, can we? We've got no idea. And there's, and there's no doubt they would have thought, oh, our God, Yahweh, he's abandoned us. He'd wiped them off, discarded all his previous promises and plans and and probably started afresh with another nation, somewhere else. They were totally alone and totally abandoned, totally without hope. What a mess. And in a way, can we in, in some small measure feel for that? So then we come to Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Oh, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God, Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. And I know, brethren and sisters, that this is prophetic of, of John and the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but let's look at this from their point of view. In BC 600, roughly speaking, this remnant, the true Israelite, the faithful would have hung on those words, wouldn't they? God was there and God is in control. God is in my life and he does know what he is doing and he's able to comfort. Verse 8. The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. They, they and we are grass and we come and go, but God's word stands forever, forever. And come what may, in a natural sense and in an individual sense, in a national sense and an international sense, God's word stands alone and it stands firm. And verses 9 and 10 will happen. O Zion that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, 
Adonai Yahweh will come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. That's going to happen, brethren and sisters, because Yahweh said it would. Verse 11, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd and he shall gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. It will happen, brethren and sisters, because we are chosen, we are peculiar, we are a royal priesthood. That's what Israel had and that's what we are, aren't we? It's going to happen. And, and from verses 12 to 31, which we're not going to read, you just cast your eyes down, brethren and sisters. Isaiah spells out for us the greatness and the uniqueness and the wonder of the God that they and we serve. Magnificent words. You just go, that's your homework for tonight, brothers and sisters. You go home and read that. The wonder of the God we serve and what he can do. See, verses, we'll read a couple. Verse 12. This is the God, brothers and sisters, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out the heavens with us with a span and, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in balance. Who has directed the spirit of Yahweh, being his counsellor, hath taught him? No one. No one's above that, brothers and sisters. In verse 15, Behold the nations, including Babylon and Assyria and all the rest, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as small dust of the balance. Behold, he takes up the isles as a very small things. The nation, brethren and sisters, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, Russia, whatever, whatever. Enormous power, isn't it? Verse 21, have you not known, have you not heard, hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circles of the earth and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, enormous power, enormous care. What a God, brethren and sisters, they and we have. And he is here to equip us for eternity. What a God we have. And so from chapter 41 to 66, Isaiah paints the picture of a God who is all of those things because it's going to tell us that he can perform and he can deliver. He is greater than any idol, greater than any individual, more powerful than any king, and he's able to direct any nation at any time. And more astonishing than any of that, he's able to direct the future. And Yahweh can even name and tell the future of yet unborn kings. So as the people sat and cried in their misery in far-off Babylon, they could, with a great deal of confidence, know and have confidence in the mighty king of the universe. Fear not, for I am with thee. And we've got to take these words on board, brothers and sisters, right now in the difficulties of life, which are nothing compared to what they had, but in our own difficulties. This, these verses are for us. I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. 
Brothers and sisters, we've got a God that can do anything and we've got to believe that. I want to spend three or four minutes of each chapters 41 to 44 because it really sets the scene for chapter 45. There's a build-up of ideas and themes, all, all interrelated and in, in stepping stones to vindicate Yahweh over and above anything else. And on that basis, they and we can have enormous confidence. Chapter 41, verse 1. Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength, and let them come near. Let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. We've got a courtroom scene here, and, and God's on trial. Is God in control or idols? Man's thoughts, the figment of man's imagination. God's speaking and he, and he turns to the Gentiles, the islands, that is, the, to the far reaches of the earth, the whole world, the distant coastlands. Let them come for judgment or decision. Let all the earth make a decision about me. You nations, you idol worshippers, you make a decision about me based on actual evidence. You decide if what I'm saying is true. Verse 2. Who raised up the righteous man from the east and called him to his foot, gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings. He gave them as the dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow. This verse is an important basis for chapter 45. This God of verse 1 asks a question, not what, but who, who? So to his people then and now, do things just happen or is it God at work? Is it chance or is it providence? Is our life and history random? Or is it controlled for a greater purpose? So God asks and says, who? Who? Who does these things specifically according to a, a prearranged order? I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up a man from the east. Cyrus the Great, the Persian, God tells us. tells Israel and us. I'm involved in this and I'm working. I'm active in human history and I'm active in the future. Why well, mention that here? Well, Isaiah was writing to the Jews in the 6th century during 70 years of servitude and struggle and, and, and a time of discouragement and despair. Year after year after year after year after year. But if they read this here... And, and they would have known by local gossip and, and messages coming from here and there and so on, that in the east, in the east, a man was a, a rising up who was niggling at Babylon. We all read our newspapers, don't we, brothers and sisters? A man is rising in the north at the minute, isn't he? And, and don't we read all that and aren't we encouraged? It gives us hope, doesn't it? Well, that's what happened here. And, and how hope would have, would have sprung and, and attitudes would have changed, developed, habits changed. And God wanted them to understand that he was behind it. And we're waiting also, brothers and sisters, we're waiting also that a man coming out of the, the east, rising out of the, out of the sun's rising, aren't we? We're waiting for him as well. That's a bit of a type. God's behind that. In the end of verse 4, the end of verse 4, 
I, Yahweh the first, and with the last, I am he. I'm he. I'm doing this. In verses 9 and 10, Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not discouraged, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, I will help thee, I will uphold thee with the hand of my righteousness. Don't fear, don't fear, don't be dismayed. I'm going to help, I'm going to uphold. And and we can't miss the lesson here, can we? Living in this present, evil, idolatrous, Babylonian world. And as time goes on and on and on, don't we get weary, brethren and sisters, decades, time goes on and on and on. And it saps our will. And it saps our strength. And it devours our children. As it, and, and it strangles our faith, doesn't it? it? It just bears down upon us all the time. And it drowns us by an onslaught of humanism and all sorts of isms. But we stand firm, brethren and sisters. We stand firm because a man from the east is coming with healing in his wings to save us and to redeem us and to uphold us. Let us not let Babylon overtake us. Verse 20, that we may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of Yahweh hath done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. So God is inviting the whole world to think about that, including us, and he proves his absolute superiority in predicting future events 100 years in advance. And chapter 42 continues with a, with a theme of this section, which is comfort. Comfort ye my people, of chapter 40 and verse 1. And not only was a man from the east coming, but look what else is coming. There was a servant like none other. Verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I put my spirit upon him, he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up his nor, nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he hath set judgment in the earth. And the isles shall wait for his law. And again, Yahweh is, is talking to the islands, the faraway coastlines, again of chapter 41, verse 1. The isles of chapter 42, verse 4. The Gentiles, brothers and sisters, of chapter 42, 1 and 6. The Gentiles. And verse 8. I am Yahweh. That is my name and my glory I'm not going to give to another neither my praise to graven images. See, here's the issue again. God was on trial and he will not be compromised, ever. Idols or God, you pick. Verse 9. Behold, the former things that come to pass and new things do I declare before they spring forth. I'm going to tell you about them. He's going to perform. I am Yahweh, the one who will do. And and verse 5, he's the sole creator. And he's not going to share his glory. He has proven himself by what has happened before. It's now history. Now he declares things that are going to rise. New servants, 
well before they spring forth, well before, 150 years before Cyrus, and if we take the type, two and a half thousand years before our Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 10, brothers and sisters, verse 10, why not sing a new song? Why not unto this mighty God? Why not? Because he has done great things for us and he's doing them. And chapter 43 continues the story of what the future holds. And for the remnant, again, the true Israelite, those who do not slumber and sleep, they see hope and comfort despite, despite the seemingly difficult circumstances that they were living in in Babylon. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my, my people. And all the, all the difficult circumstances which life throws at us. In chapter 43, verses 1 to 13, we've got there, brethren and sisters, a moving and an accurate account of God's work in the nation. An obvious far-reaching prophecy. But for them there, is there not great warmth and love and tenderness for his people? See in verse 1, I, I'm going to do this. I have redeemed thee, I've called thee by name. Verse 2, I. Verse 4, thou. Verse 5, I. Verse 6, I. Verse 7, I. I, I. I'm going to do all these things for you because you are my people. Verse 12. I have declared and have saved and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am all-powerful. I am Ael. All-powerful. I can do anything. And, and we're in that. All of it, brethren and sisters. We are his present-day witnesses. We are his servant, adopted into that nation. And who's going to stop what he will do, verse 13? Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that I, that I can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who's going to let that? Verse 15, I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's wonderful and exciting, comforting words, aren't they? For them there, right through history, right down to our time, here we are, brothers and sisters, he's our king. Is there anything that he can't do? Who cares what circumstances we may fall into? Who cares who persecutes us? Who cares about the weariness of life? all that comfort, brothers and sisters. God's comforting us with these words. We've got a, a powerful God on our side. We have Yahweh, the Holy One, the King. But look at the contrast in chapter 44. Idols, idols. Verse 9. They make a graven image that, are, that all of them are vanity and their delectable things shall not profit and they are their own witnesses, they see not, they know that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a god or molten or graven image that is profitable for nothing? Well, in verse 12, we've got a smith that makes something out of a bit of iron. In verse 13, we've got a carpenter who makes something out of a bit of wood. Verse 15 and 17, just cast your eyes through that. Absolute stupidity and folly to, to fall down and worship something like that. It's absolutely madness and it's laughable, isn't it? 
Verse 21. Look what the king has done. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee, thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Oh, see, we've got here now a sin-forgiven, restored, redeemed people. A, a beautiful, wonderful, remembered people. Not forgotten in the depths of Babylon or Adelaide, as it were. Not left desolate. A worthy and reliable and valuable servant we are. And all Isaiah could do was sing a song in verse 23. And I'm not going to sing it for you, I promise. It will be disastrous. But look at verse 23. See, this is what Isaiah does. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Yahweh hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains. O forest and every tree therein, for Yahweh hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. See, all the earth, the heavens, above, below, forest, trees, everything, sing in an amazing and, and uplifting and united praise to the God of heaven, the first and the last, the mighty rock, in verse 8. How could they and how could we doubt such a mighty power? How could they and we turn our back and worship lifeless and empty and vain idols? Heartless they are, no heart. Unloving bits of wood and stone. See, brethren and sisters, there's our God. There he is in these chapters. Wonderful verses. And you can look, I'm not going to read them out. There's our God. And having dealt, brethren and sisters, with dumb idols and with a the background they were living in for 70 years of captivity in the middle of sorcery and witchcraft and, and divination and reading the stars and looking at goats' entrails and, and reading tea leaves and horoscopes and so on and so forth. Yahweh says through Isaiah in verse 24, Thus saith Yahweh thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am Yahweh that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spareth aboard the earth by myself. And I frustrate the totems and the liars and maketh diviners mad that turns wise men backwards and, and maketh their knowledge absolute foolishness. Yahweh is totally superior to every other God and as we shall see, because he can tell the future and he can do it with pinpoint accuracy. What he is telling the captives, brothers and sisters, in verses 26 to 28, he's telling them, I rule the world. That's my sphere of activity. I can do things that you can't even dream about. See, verse, verse 24 is a, is a creation verse, isn't it? He hammers home the point to those who he has redeemed, that's Israel and you and I, in verse 24, he's talking to those who have been born of him. We, who, who were created in Christ Jesus, a new creature, born of the spirit and not of the flesh. To those, he says, I am the one who shall be. I made everything. I stretched out the heavens alone. I did that alone. I hammered out the earth all by myself. 
No one helped me do that. On my own, totally unaided, I did it. And by implication, if I can do all that, then bringing you and me to a spiritual birth is in my scope as well. If I can do all that, I can work with you. And at verse 25, that means I have to say that I've got to bring everyone else to naught and make other people appear foolish, then so be it. They are lies, they are full of madness. They live under the umbrella of utter foolishness. And you know what else in verse 26? I stand behind every word that has been spoken by my servants, Isaiah himself, Micah, Amos, Hosea and so on. See, I do all those things. See, see, these verses portray the evidence as in a courtroom, don't they? I am Yahweh. I do all those things. That, 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 that. And notice the first six are what he does. And the last three, brethren and sisters, are what he will do. He's done the first lot and he is definitely going to do the next lot. And in verse 26... He will do three things. He says this, Jerusalem is going to be inhabited. The cities of Judah are going to be rebuilt. And thirdly, I'm going to restore the ruins and the waste places. Oh, brothers and sisters, you you imagine the people back then. That would have given them huge relief to their hearts and their minds, those who were faithful. The captives would have would have read those words. Oh, oh there is an end in sight. And don't we feel that? There's an end. We can see the end in sight, can't we? Things happening in the world, the end is in sight. The captivity will come to an end. The, the promises, oh, they're not going to be forgotten. There is hope. And, and even in the depths of despair and hardship, God has not forsaken us. That's what they would have thought. That's what we think, isn't it? All these things would have raced through their minds. As by the rivers of Babylon, they, they were there and they sat down and they wept for what was lost. So we come to verse 27. This is what God does. He says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up the rivers. Well, it's, it's a bit of a verse which seems somewhat out of place. There are four explanations of what it could be that I've read and all of the commentators are divided on these opinions. God's power had undoubtedly been involved in the first three. The waters of creation, the waters of uh, the waters that coming down the time of Noah's flood, or as the nation went through the depths of the Red Sea. They are ideas that have been floated around. They were historical events. However, in the context of the verses which we've got in Isaiah 44, Verse 26 is future. They're all future. And so is verse 28. So it would seem out of context to go to a, an historical setting when verses 26 and verse 28 are both futuristic events. So I think verse 27 is as the last point, the drying up of the depths of the rivers during the uh, Darius the Medes conquering of Babylon. Now I'm going to ask Dan, if we wouldn't mind, to give you out a sheet 
that talks about that. Please don't read that while I'm talking because otherwise you'll forget what I'm talking about. You'll be so absorbed in that. What it is, it's a, it's a thing I printed off of the historian Herodotus who, who uh, gives his opinion about the taking of the, of the uh, city of Babylon by Cyrus. Now, just very briefly, and don't read it in detail, you, know, you don't want to upset the speaker, Go over the page, second page, point one one ninety. Or it might be down the bottom. I think it might be down the bottom of your first page. Point one one ninety. And um, that tells you the story, brothers and sisters, of the opinion of Herodotus of how Cyrus took Babylon. I hope you've got this there enough, boys. Okay. I can't see the time. What's the time? Ten to nine. I've got ten minutes. Goodness. So, we'll, we will press on. So, there is a note of caution. History books do not fully support this means of conquer, but it is not an established fact, but it is pretty accurate, I think. So, we are going to assume, for the sake of what is written here in Scripture, that that is what happened about the taking of Babylon. Right, so 100... I can have a drink of water. So, 150 years before, before the man and before the event, God names him and says what he's going to do. It's a remarkable verse. How is God going to accomplish verse 26? Well, by the means of a man from the east, which we look at back in chapter 41. King Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king. So verse 28 re-emphasises verse 26. Similar language. It's going to happen and it will happen. And it will happen not under a harsh authoritarian rule, the Assyrians, but under the hand of a gentle shepherd. Not under compulsion, but gentle goading. And we know this story from Ezra and Nehemiah, don't we? We don't want to go back there, but that's what happened. Not under fear, but somewhat of trust. Not under military savagery, but under political planning and guidance. That's how that happened. 150 years before is Yahweh, the Hebrew God, Far and away, the best of all gods, because he, because he can do that, because his knowledge and his scope is in far excess of what idols can do, anything or anyone else. He's above all of that. No other idol or god or anything could do and achieve what he can. He's a redeemer, he's a comforter, he's a covenant keeper. He's a mover and shaker of kingdoms, ruling in their politics, and they don't even know about it. He is a big picture God, isn't he, brothers and sisters, doing all this, what he's doing in the world today. And yet, all the hairs on our head are numbered. Why would you want to serve anyone else? That's the issue here in this courtroom scene of gods over thousands of years, hundreds of years. 
And all this come to pass, as, as I said, we look at Ezra and Nehemiah. The temple and the city foundations were started, roughly 516 BC. And the, and the courtroom argument is crystallised here in these verses. Idols can babble on about all sorts of things, all sorts of mysterious ways. They can't tell the future. So here you have Cyrus in scripture. Here's our man Cyrus. And the Cyrus predictions are made to show God can tell the future in a very specific manner. And therefore, in this section, the Cyrus prophecies are the very fulcrum, as it were, the centrepiece to show the greatness and the very uniqueness of this God of Israel. He is God's servant. He is God's shepherd. He is God's anointed. And the type of Cyrus to the Lord Jesus Christ is unmistakable, isn't it? All this fits in with him being the great shepherd of the sheep and of being the anointed, the Messiah yet to come. So in verses 1 to 7 of verse 45, we have this picture. I've left out certain statements out of these verses, and this is according to Rotherham's if you think that language is a bit strange, but I think it presents a beautiful picture. I, I really love Rotherham's. But I've left out certain phrases. I, I just want you to get the picture about Cyrus. So he says this, to subdue before him nations and the loins of kings. The loins of kings will I ungird. To open before him the two-leaved doors and the gates shall not be shut. I before thee will go and the hills will I level. The doors of bronze will I break in pieces. The doors of iron will I cut asunder. All these things talking about what God is going to do to Cyrus. But what we have here is a storyline of what God is saying to Cyrus and what he will do with him. Remember here, the prediction here is not to Cyrus, but to a frightened, intimidated, insecure and doubting nation who are struggling with their faith. Could God deliver at the end of 70 years? Which hadn't even started. How? How? How could he do that? How could this, this glowing prophecy of restoration ever happen? How could it be kept? Can God deliver when everything seems lost and, and even impossible? Big lesson here, isn't there for us, brothers and sisters? You, you imagine the priest's agony of thought when, when Isaiah said of Cyrus, you are my shepherd. And now, oh, not only that, he's anointed. That title was for priests and kings and prophets and, and now an, an unborn pagan foreign king was going to get called that. That was an impossibility to them. And, and imagine the, the gasp of horror. Oh no, oh no, at that time. But however strange it was, out of left field completely, God in his own peculiar way chose a Gentile king Gentile conqueror to bring about his plan. Look at what scripture says about our mate Cyrus. What amazing language, isn't it? Very clear and very strong language. As I said, undoubtedly messianic, and we can understand that for the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the here and now of Isaiah's time, 700 BC, how odd that would have been. Cyrus was chosen by God to fill out the big picture 
the master plan of, of what he does at times without rhyme or reason to us in our minds. And we in all of our everyday events and actions in our time, sometimes we can't fathom God, can we? We, we can't fathom where God is at. And faith is required. Can God deliver? Even though the way ahead is often dark and gloomy and, and nothing adds up. Big lessons here for us. It's Hebrews 11 verse 1, isn't it? Trusting in the unknown and in the unseen. And God has grasped his hand. And, and this is an expression of, of choosing deliberate and closeness. There's a fondness there when you grasp someone's hand. So the, the conquest of Cyrus were not a matter of any sort of historical chance or a result of the brilliance of Cyrus in his battles and all his military strategies, but as a result of the absolute, specific, minute details of what God had planned. We fill in the blanks, brethren and sisters, and we'll conclude on this. We fill in the blanks. See, all those things that God did with Cyrus, there was a reason that thou mayest get to know that I, Yahweh, am calling thee by thy name and the God of Israel for the sake of even Israel my chosen. And God is moving in the world with Putin and all those others for the sake, brethren and sisters, that you and I might know that God is the God of us, his chosen to instil in us a desire and a want for the things to come. I am Yahweh and there is none else. Beside me there is no God. And brothers and sisters, he wants us that men may get to know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am Yahweh and there is none else. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.